Father, it's just a joy to be able to come again this morning. And we are dependent upon your kindnesses and your mercies every day. And we're thankful they are new again today. We love to come together around your word and to be with your people. And Holy Spirit, our prayer is that you will change us and grow us today and encourage us and correct us where needed. And pray that you would use your word and each of us here to do that today. And just thankful for your word, which gives us great instructions in life, which trains us in righteousness. So it may be thoroughly furnished for every good work. And pray for each soul here today that this will be a class that will be beneficial. And even as we move on into uh, the broader church service today, that we will all uh, benefit greatly in our souls for having been here today. Pray these things in Christ's powerful name. Amen. So last week we talked on contentment. Going to try to finish that up today. Kind of want to get more towards the practical side, the application side today. But look at your outline. Just wanted to do a brief review of, of contentment. And I, I think Jeremiah Burroughs' definition of contentment is as good as it gets. Christian contentment is that sweet inward, and we're talking about the inward man here, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in, those are key words, he does not waste any words, which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. And as we had last week, kind of highlighted Philippians 4, 11 through 13. When he speaks of every condition, Paul talks about every circumstance or situation. And as we read from Philippians 4, 11 through 13, I don't say this out of need, for I have learned. We talked about how contentment is something we learn. I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know both how to have a little, and I know how to have a lot. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being content, whether well-fed or hungry, whether in abundance or in need. I'm able to do all things through Him who strengthens me. Paul's summary statement is there that I, I can make it through any situation and I can be content in it because I'm able to do everything through Him, through Christ who strengthens me. He is our sufficiency. He is our satisfaction. We have enough. We have everything we need in Him. After last Sunday, had several conversations with some of you, and I just wanted to go to some additional thoughts or truths in regards to contentment that kind of came out of those conversations. I thought they were very helpful, and I, I really appreciated them. One was that contentment leads to confidence, and I think that when you look at Philippians 4.13, that is so true. So, no matter what situation you're in, no matter any circumstances that we find ourselves in in this life, we should have confidence because of Philippians 4.13. I can do everything through Him. I mean, that sounds pretty self-confident at first. I can do everything. I'm able to do all things. That sounds very confident. Qualified with through Him who strengthens me. So there's, there should be a certain confidence that underlies 
and underlines our experiences of life as we go through them knowing that we can uh, rely on him who will strengthen us and give us that contentment. So I thought that was really good and useful to, to think about that. Secondly, and I think this is uh, kind of obvious actually from, from Philippians chapter 4, but discontent contributes to anxiety, fear, and distress. I think there's a huge connection. We're going to get to this a little bit later. I think there's even a connection between the state of our inward man and how we, our health and how we uh, feel. So there's, there's a big connection between our inward man and our outward man. So discontent contributes to anxiety and fear and distress. And the opposite of that is true also. Contentment brings uh, peacefulness, tranquility, and, a, and a, an undistressed situation. The connection to that, and I really hadn't seen this before until going through uh, Philippians 4 a week or two ago um, in preparation for this. But if you look at Philippians chapter 4, if you guys want to have your Bible open there, you might just do that. We all know the Apostle Paul, when he writes, he likes to just take off and go kind of goes from one subject to another and sometimes has long sentences that his thoughts in Philippians chapter 4 they have some they have some connection here in verse 6 he talks about not being anxious about anything i think that's a, a well-known verse well-known commandment of this church and anybody who has been a believer very long in Christ. But he exhorts them to commit everything to prayer and supplication with thanksgiving and talks about as a result of that in verse 7, the peace of God will guard your hearts. He talks about what things we should meditate upon in verse 8. Things that are true and noble, lovely, virtuous things things which meditate upon the things you've learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. Then he flips to the generosity of the Philippian people, but he talks about contentment. So I think the link between not being anxious but being content is, is here in chapter 4. So I, I think that's just a, a really good... <clears throat> thing to believe from the scriptures that <clears throat> discontentment will cause you to be a fearful, anxious, stressed out, worn down person. found a quote out of the, the book, uh, the daily devotional book. When we are discontent, we're in a constant state <coughs> of distress, anxiety, and regret. Failing to trust God's essential goodness, we become suspicious of Him and cannot enjoy Him or His many blessings we're focused on our own circumstances and we don't love others well. I think this would be a good time to say that really, as, as she says here, it's Megan Hill from, from that book, we're focused on our own circumstances. Discontent can really become a kind of a preoccupation with self 
and we think less of self and more Christ, we're going to go from being discontent to more content. So I just wanted to, to draw that connection between anxiety, fear, and discontent. Thirdly, <clears throat> contentment, these are things that kind of came out of last week's lesson that I wanted to, to uh, tie up. Contentment and the abundant life are linked inseparably. Discontentment rots away at the bones and robs a believer of the vitality and abundant life that God intends. Jesus said, I've come to give you life, and I've come to give you life more abundantly. And I've come to give you eternal life, and eternal life is not just longevity of life, but quality of life. It's the life that we're really supposed to, to have in Christ. I think another way of saying this is that contentment is linked with the state of our body. And this comes from Proverbs 14.30. A tranquil heart is life to the body, but jealousy is rottenness to the bones. A tranquil life, a tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot. It's an interesting scripture that you have a contented, tranquil, peaceful heart. It's going to give life to your body as well. Um, got, probably got some medical people in here don't understand it totally but when we're in a straight state of despair or discontent or stress or fear we release some different kinds of hormones which aren't good for us it might be in the short term but they're not in the long term cortisol others like I say I'm not the medical person but I do understand that there is a great link there link between us. On the other hand, when we have a sense of well-being and a tranquil heart, we also have those good ones that are dumped on our body and we feel good and it gives help to us. So I just found that interesting that just the scriptures talk about contentment in a way that is uh, life-giving both for the flesh and for the inward man as well. So question here, do you, and somebody's you're welcome to answer this, but these are more for yourself. Do you find yourself repeatedly convinced that a change in circumstances will make everything better and finally bring the sought after contentment? Do you find your contentment subject to your circumstances? I think that's really a question for each of us to think about is, are you a circumstance dependent person? Be careful of letting your circumstances dictate your feelings. So remember Philippians 4.13 and the confidence that fills the one who knows that Christ is enough, even in seemingly untenable circumstances. It's not that we're not going to have really tough circumstances which are going to tempt us to fear and to distrust God. What do you do? in those <clears throat> times. Another quote <clears throat> from Megan Hill's devotional, top of page two. In what seems like upside down, counterintuitive logic, the scriptures make it clear that a better life consists not in chasing something new, but in being contented with the way things are. 
The way to abundant life is a tranquil or contented heart. Now obviously, there are times when we shouldn't be content the way things are, and we could flesh that out and nuance that, but I think what she means here is oftentimes circumstances in life are designed by God to grow us, to test us, and to cause us to love and trust Him more. Be careful of trying to get out from underneath that and escape and find something new that you think are greener pastures. So I just made a note there for further reflection, make a list of ways you notice rot in your bones as a result of discontent. That's something you can do on, on your own. One more thing from last week, number four, we are in union with Christ and Christ is our encouragement. Now, sometime this week, read Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. See the blessings and promises associated with our union with Christ and Philippians 2, 1. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, Christ is the one who brings contentment and encouragement. And I certainly don't want to want to miss that. And again, quoting from, from the book, our union with Christ and the fact that we are in Christ should bring us encouragement and comfort or contentment. He has loved us enough to give Himself for us and He will continue to love us to the end. <clears throat> he has given us His Spirit to help us and He has showered us with affection and sympathy. When we are disappointed by the way things have turned out, when we are frustrated by situations that don't seem to change, or when we are baffled by circumstances that change without warning, we are not alone, but are in eternal union with Christ. Our union with Christ allows us to love others. The rotten fruit of discontent is rivalry, and covetousness. Focused on ourselves, there's that preoccupation with ourself. We envy the seemingly better circumstances of others. To a discontented heart, our neighbor is not an object of kindness, but a symbol of the life we wish we had. But secure an eternal love of Christ for us, united to Him by faith, and reminded of His sacrifice on our behalf, we can trust Him with our circumstances and freely love others. So I thought that was just a great strong encouragement to trust in Christ. Remember your union with Him. You can tr we can trust Him because we're united with Him in all of our circumstances. And that allows us to be content. We're right where He wants us. So I want to get to seven different applications of contentment in real life and What's your feedback here and your thoughts on this? So before we do, I want to just <clears throat> make a general statement here. Before we give counsel to one another or to ourselves, we ought to really ask ourselves: do I need to give an indicative counsel here or counsel that is an imperative? An indicative is a statement of truth, a statement of fact, a statement of, of something that is, that is real, true. An imperative is a command. So I think oftentimes the first thing you want to do is give people imperatives. You want to give them commands like, well, obey this. Sometimes the best, but sometimes they just need good truth to meditate upon that is the best counsel you can give. So I just wanted to throw that out there as we think about, as you think about what counsel would you give in some of these hypothetical situations that we're going to get into here.
Do they need some teaching, some indicatives, or do they need to be obedient here? Think about that as you think about the counseling you give. Well, probably we'd start out with number one, work, workplace, responsibilities at work. Larry <coughs> hates his work and workplace. That's a pretty strong word there. He is convinced that he needs to change his circumstances and find employment at a competitor company. He believes the grass is greener over there. What questions would you ask him? What counsel would you offer? How might you counsel Larry to be faithful in his job, although an undesirable one? I know there's not enough information there to definitively define what Larry needs to do. But what kind of counsel would you give him? He's not content where he's at. Thinks he would be content somewhere else. I think asking some clarifying questions. I mean, is he succeeding at his job? Is he? What is it he, he's discontented about? Because if he's doing his job well, but he doesn't feel like he's getting promotions, or you know, there's other things. That just trying to understand the situation better might help him. Uh, see where he's discontented. Mm -hmm. Try to find out what the root of his discontent is, why he doesn't like it. It's good. Maybe he's stuck where he's at because he just always has a rotten attitude or something, too. Or nobody wants to. Also, asking why does he think it's going to get better if he goes to a different place doing the same job? If it's the job that he's blaming for his discontent, well, the job's going to be very similar. <coughs> so why would that make you happier if you're in a different location? Yeah, I think you're really getting it to you. What do you want, Larry, that you're not getting? I've never done this personally, but I've been a supporter in this role, and um, we sat out and did a pro and con for both jobs just to really see it in black and white. And then you could ask the further questions. Mm -hmm. and, I don't know, kind of rate which of these are trivial, which of these are actually truly important. Yeah. That's a way to get to what's the wise way forward. Let's get some wisdom here looking at pros and cons. That's a great word. Green is probably just a different shade. <laughs> <laughs> I never forget seeing a comic one time. I can't remember what Ace Reed is that the guy that used to do the livestock Alan shaking your head, dressing. a cow sticking her head through the fence into the neighbor's pasture because the grass is greener over there, then sticks it back over into the grass that she's standing on. So she's over here and looks back to where she's standing and thinks it, so it's kind of satisfied, got over the greener pasture. Actually, it's green where I'm at, so it's kind of the way we can be sometimes. Well, and unfortunately, a lot of people think it's the job and they don't realize yeah, you just take your problem with you. You've seen people that go from job to job, and, and, and the common denominator is you. <laughs> so I, there may be a bigger problem than we're even addressing, but that's, that's a whole other concept. Yeah, it could be that the problem you're, is the person. You're no fun to work with, and no, you know, nobody yeah. you. It could be legitimately that you yeah. need to change. I mean, that, yeah. that comes along. Yeah, I guess in the other side of it, what about 
like, I guess on the positive side, is there something about the workplace culture or something that you don't agree with in terms of biblical principles or something, if it's that versus you're just, you think it would be better there just because of the personal reasons? Okay. What's the dissatisfaction all about? And I put the verse there, the two verses I think that would be good to go to is Colossians 3, 23 through 24. actually should have been 22 through 24. Somebody want to read that? Colossians 3, 22 through 24. <coughs> Bond servants in everything, uh, bondservants obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer we paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. We use these verses to somewhat equate to the employer-employee relationship as opposed to maybe more the bond servant back then. Anyway, this is somebody that's working for somebody. Some really good questions in here. Are you doing what they're asking you to do? Are you obeying them? Are you doing it from the heart, fearing God? Are you doing it as to the Lord? Are you bringing glory to Him through this you're trying to represent him. And do you understand? If your employer is doing you wrong, you'll get repaid for it at some point. I think that's a really good section of scriptures to go through or go to with somebody in this situation to try to try to help them come to a to a good a good place. I did on the on thir- page three, if you want to, maybe you're already over there. I did want to highlight some truths to keep in mind in regards to work. And by the way, this one comes up commonly. You know, obviously some of you have already said this is you've worked with people and you know you make a list of pros. This is this is one where we really get to do the one another's with each other in work. And I thought some of these comments were good to to bring to bear here. Any work that is not inherently sinful, whether paid or unpaid, skilled or unskilled, full-time or part-time or occasional, is good. Work is good. I don't know if we really think about that. Work is good. Unless it's inherently sinful. And there are jobs we shouldn't take because they probably are inherently sinful. For example, I'm not going to be a bartender, right? It's work, but I don't think that's good work. So work is good from Genesis 2.15 and, and Genesis 1.31. Genesis 1.31, I saw the creation, he saw it was good. And in Genesis 2.15, he put Adam in the garden to work and keep it. So work is good. I think it's a very important principle. Here's another big one. Work is fallen. And I think we have these 
expectations that work ought to be something we enjoy to the point that it always goes well and there's never anything wrong with it. And if it's, if it's not, then I need to find something else because work needs to be fulfilling, satisfying in every, every way. But work has fallen. That's from Genesis 3, 17 through 19. After Adam and Eve fell, we understand that there's work in this world, this fallen world that results in lots of thorns and weeds and all kinds of frustrations and obstacles. It's not the way it was originally. So work is good. Work is fallen. And I think from Colossians 3.24, we can say that work is redeemed for God's glory and our good. Mm-hmm. So having that grid of, yeah, work is not always going to just go well. I think we're kind of in many ways, we are perfectionists when it comes to work. But most work is fixing problems, right? I mean, Joe, you're fixing stuff broken down. Yeah. Any of you who are in the farming business or cattle business, you know, you're, you're fighting against things. It's relationships at work. They're fallen. They're broken. So I think understanding that helps us understand work should be redeemed for God's glory and our good. Any thoughts on that before we move to the next one? Hey, John. Um, for me, um, yeah, I would like low, low income would be there. But I realized, okay, I do not need to please other people. I need to please God what I do because, yeah, money is not everything, but if it feels, but if I work for the glory of God, that's more than anything. Yeah, we are image bearers. And we represent Christ to our employer, whether a believer or not. And we should do that in a way that brings glory to God and reflects well on Him. Always need to keep that in mind. The second one's money and possessions. And I've lifted some scriptures there that might be helpful. First Timothy six, seventeen through nineteen, Hebrews thirteen, five, and then passage out of Acts. Well, Tom is wealthy by any standard. He is discontent and doesn't quite know why. He comes to you and wants help for his unhappiness. Meantime, his wife Jill is also discontent and restless. She shops endlessly, but never gets satisfied, nor is it enough. What questions might you ask and how would you use God's word to bring them to restful and contented state? Again, I realize this is very limited information, but it's like the circumstantial like this is that she like for Jill, she's discontent so she shops endlessly. Um, is it after a certain circumstance? It's like kind of that collecting data of like what like clarifying questions of like does it happen after you have an argument with mm-hmm. like Jill has an argument with Tom or something like she Love it that you guys are asking questions. 
Judy's talking about asking clarifying questions. What are the circumstances that cause you to go want to shop? And scriptures are very clear about that in terms of asking questions and gathering information before you answer. A righteous man studies before he answers, and whoever answers a matter before he hears, it's a falling shame to him. So good, you're, you're going to ask questions, lots of questions, to help to get, help get to the bottom of this. I'd also be curious to know what their spiritual state looks like. How often are they reading their Bibles? How often are they attending church? Are they involved in their church? Are they pouring into ministries there? Are they tithing? All of those things, and then asking why? Why do you think you're discontent? Why do you think you're unhappy? Mm-hmm. And what would change? You know, what could change to make you happy? A lot of time that can pinpoint exactly what they think. You know, just being blunt and asking, what do you think you need to be happy? Mm-hmm. I, I, um, okay, money is good at the end. Like pay your bills and all of that, but the Bible clearly. Um, all the money is the root of all evil. So, does the money make you sore, make you happy, and all that stuff? It's not. It's not making Tom and his wife happy, apparently. He's discontented. So, I like what the direction you all are going. Get, get some questions out there. I, I think. Uh, is Randy Patton, who used to be the head of ACBC, who has like seven diagnostic questions to kind of get to what you were talking about, Lauren. Like, what's the spiritual state of this person? How often do you read your Bible? What are your favorite Bible verses, which sometimes bring out what what their the state of their soul is and whatnot? So I, I like going that direction. <clears throat> How would you use God's Word to minister to Tom and his wife in the situation? Is this a time for some imperatives here? Let's let's say that Tom is a believer, and his wife is, and, and is a regular assembler with God's people, Bible studies and church services. Would this be a good time to maybe instruct him from the Word? Say, here's some commands from Scripture. Turn to 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19 and take a look at that. Again, assuming this is a believer, that it's right to bring the word to them. Timothy 6, 17-19 Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty nor to trust in uncertain riches but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy I think that's wonderful that we should enjoy the things that God has given us Ecclesiastes is full of that we should richly all uh, He gives us these things richly so we can enjoy them but let them do good He's talking about those who are rich, that they may be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come that they may lay hold on eternal life. I think this is a pretty common 
area of discontentment is our material possessions, riches. And here, Paul just lays it out there to Timothy to command rich people to do that. Do good works. Do good. Be generous. Share. Lay up treasure in heaven. Trust in. Don't trust in these riches, but trust in the living God. Which kind of indicates maybe they're trusting in their wealth and their riches and not in God. That's what I take away from that text. And the antidote for that is to be generous and to give it away and to trust God as you give away that which you think is bringing you security and you bless others and you lay hold on eternal life. You lay up a good foundation. This is one of those where I would probably go to some imperatives here. Again, given that you have a, a true believer. Hebrews 13.5, we talked about that last week, about let your life being free from the love of money or from a covetous way of life and be content with what you have. For God has said, I'll never leave you or forsake you. So there's that. Don't trust in riches. Trust in God. You will be happy when you give away that which you've been trusting in and you trust in God. Acts 2, 42-47. Why don't we turn there. Acts chapter 2. Talking about the first church. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and the breaking of bread and prayers. Then fear came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were done to the apostles. All who believed were together. They had all things in common. They sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. They're literally selling possessions. Who, who do we know for sure did that? They did. And what happened to them? They didn't give all of it. They were, weren't trusting. They were lying. And we know Barnabas did that and sold land and gave it so that all could, could be taken care of. And they had a situation where there was probably a lot of people who were ostracized from, the, from society because of their faith in Christ and they, they needed to band together to help everybody out. You know, it's interesting, Don, you can see uh, in the rest of Acts uh, the fruits of Barnabas' ministry. So the fact that he was generous and he became an encourager and that sort of thing, you know, just kind of gives you a picture of somebody that is content. Mm -hmm. Great point. Great point. And a contented person is a generous person and an encourager. That's his, that was his gift in his ministry, a great encourager. By giving, financially, he was an encourager. And of course, he was the one who brought Paul around to people who were scared of him.
I like bringing in. I didn't. I didn't write this one down, but I like bringing in Matthew six twenty four here, where uh, Jesus talked about you can't serve two masters. You can't. You can't uh, serve God and money. Yeah. And it's just you can't serve God and riches. So for Tom, I mean, I think that's somewhat as blunt as we have to be in this situation, or with ourselves. Hey, hey, John. Um, I was thinking about this. If I pass away, will money go with me to heaven? No. So, and God will take care of us when we get to heaven. So, so Randy Alcorn always says that you can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. And I think that's really one of the principles here. You can store up for yourself rewards in, in heaven. And obviously their motive for giving money isn't that. It's out of generosity and, and love for other people and love for Christ. He's been generous to us. We're, we're generous in return. Okay. Number three, another area of life where we can be discontent is our health and physical abilities using 2 Corinthians 12 verse 9 there. I get very limited information here. Don't really give a scenario, but how would you minister to someone who has poor health with which they are discontented or has limited physical giftedness? And by that I mean maybe some handicappedness or just have not been given the best of bodies to live in. People who are chronically unhealthy and are discontented with it. And many of you know Johnny Erickson taught his story and had to, to deal with a, a broken body most of her life. What's the first thing you would do? This is real life stuff. Our bodies are broken too. They don't always feel good. I think something that you have to gently, very gently drill down on is do you really believe that that this is God's best for you? Do you really believe that this is for your good? Um, Mm -hmm. And then as I think that's kind of a truth that you say yes to, and then you have to say yes to again the next day, and then yes to again maybe five minutes from now. So that's why I said gently, but I think that's really what contentedness boils down to with long-lasting physical, probably long-lasting bad anything. Mm-hmm. Yep. 
just trying to help them, you know, kind of understand sort of their desires, maybe synthesize a little bit, but then find a way to use scripture on the indicative side to try to point towards the hope that they have in, in terms of where God has them and what we can draw encouragement from in terms of what's before us. Yeah, I think you said there early too about like sympathize or at least there's some this would be a good time to suffer with someone <coughs> as well, at least initially. I think of uh, 1 Thessalonians 5.14 to uh, warn those who are disobedient, encourage faint-hearted, and uphold those who are weak. So this person, they, they might be sinning by complaining, but they're suffering, they're discouraged, so I would start there first. You want to you want to encourage those who are faint-hearted, who are tired. You want to uphold those who might be weak in faith for a period of time because of their health. Probably get around to the finding out if there is some complaining, sinful complaining, sinful discontent. Yeah, I think trying to get too quickly to solving the problem here and not suffering would be a mistake. So this is a time to suffer with those who are going through that. I think of Job's friends. They started out really well. I think they didn't say anything for a week. Is that right? Like they were so... I think they were. They got it. And then they come around to tune him out later. And then God rebuked him for their bad counsel. But now I would say this. Don't pity someone who's in bad health. I don't think people need... They don't want to be pitied. They want to be encouraged and felt like they've been um, listened to and understood. But I don't think pity is the right right answer. I think weeping with them or suffering with them and just try to determine their level of discouragement and apply. You also have to like realize: is this a moment of weakness in which their faith is just struggling a little bit, and they really just need you, like you're saying, just to encourage them and to love on them? Or has this been every time you've talked to them for the last six months, this is all they can talk about, this is all that they can do, they're, no matter what, they're discontent with it. Because if that's yeah. the case, then you would lean more into rebuke and reproval. Some point. But if it's just, you know, this is just a moment of weakness, then you know, you're not going to rebuke them, you're going to love them and support them. Is this person lamenting, biblically, taking their complaints to God, not accusing Him, or are they just complaining and murmuring and accusing God? I got, I got a bad card here. I, I just think sometimes, like I used to have a friend, or I had a friend when I was growing up. He was like in his 80s, and he had plenty of ailments to complain about. But it's kind of like I, I don't feel qualified because I haven't been through that yet, you know. But it's, you know, it's kind of like you feel. Like to counsel somebody, you feel like you almost. Well, or do, why do I? <laughs> I'm no expert in this, you know. We talk about the club, at cancer club here at our church, and there's like six, five or six that are going through it, and like there's a commonality of experience there that only they can really share. They're they're very qualified. I remember having you know my heart situations, and there was four, three or four of us at the time, and we had a common understanding of you know what we were going through that was was very encouraging 
So, 2 Corinthians talks about that, that, you know, we go through things in life so that we can comfort those who are going through something similar. So those of you who have long-term health issues, you should be able to minister as well as anybody in our, in our church to those who are going through something similar. I think there can be a challenging balance, too, with so much medical knowledge that we have. There can be this temptation to turn to, like, there has to be a medical answer or a medical solution. I don't think that's wrong, but I think helping, you know, if that person's getting really discontented as the medical community just keeps coming up void, I think that would be a really place to step in and recognize and help them, hopefully to encouragingly understand that, you know, God's sovereign over that as well, and those are human beings he's blessed us with, but I think that could be really challenging, watching some people who've, who've started out really well, like, okay, I'm facing this medical thing, whatever. And then as the medical community has some answers, it's like they almost turn to that. Mm-hmm. Until that goes away, and they're like, okay, now I'll turn back to prayer. <laughs> kind of a hypochondriac situation. And, and yeah, there's a temptation for that. And again, I think it's probably just when we were talking about work, that you know, work has fallen. Our bodies are fallen. And we, we have this expectation that we ought to feel a certain way. And it doesn't always work that way. And some of us in here are at the age where you just get old enough and like it's just that way. Brock, you got something. Yeah, I think you another thing you want to do is, is try to help them put their hope where it should be. And when there's gonna be a day when your body is restored. And there's, there's a coming time when and everything will be right and all creation is expected utility in Romans eight and, and we all for the redemption of our bodies and, and so like we can we can encourage them in that way that, that someday this is this is going to be a short, temporary thing mm-hmm. in light of eternity, and we will be, you will have it a way of glory because you persevere through this, trusting the Lord. But there's there's hope and there's there's uh, anticipation of when Christ makes this all right, it's going to be so worth it. And, and do you believe that? And them to, to see that and to wrestle with that. Yeah, I think the greater the suffering, the greater the glory in many ways. So that's that's one way to to look at suffering as well. And I think something here we need to be careful of is not like one-upping each other with our suffering. Because I've heard that before. <laughs> you know, where I'm like, somebody look sharing... Look how much I'm... <laughs> well, somebody's sharing something that they truly are struggling with. And then the other person, if you were to weigh them, I would say the second person has more suffering. And there can almost be a, well, you haven't experienced what I've experienced yet. Mm-hmm. You know, so we have to be careful. We need to, the, the Lord gives us the grace needed for the trial that we have, right, to persevere through it. And we don't want to discourage a brother or sister in Christ and cause them to go the other direction. So we need to try not to be careful of our words and saying, well, well, just wait. It'll get worse. Or, you know, like, <laughs> well, well, my day was a lot worse than that. You know, just, we need to be careful. Almost like a badge or something, and, and we almost make ourselves a victim so we can be thought of. And, oh, you're, look what they're doing. I think a lot of times the person who's going through trial, the less you hear from them, the less complaining, probably the better they're wearing it in some ways. At least if they're talking to someone. But the person's out there saying, look what I'm going through. Yeah, might be kind of a one-up type of thing. Can be. Okay, I think Brock's probably going to need another Sunday for this. I, I don't want to rush through 
Next one's beauty and outward appearance. Nobody has discontent there, right? <laughs> we'll pick that up in two weeks. Because next week we want to have an all-church Sunday school. One of the things we're going to talk about tonight at the end report is we want to bolster our doctrinal statement, particularly in the area of gender issues, sexuality, and we're also going to make suggest a small couple small I say small just clarifying doctrinal in our bylaws uh, defining ministers pastors and elders as males their their duties just a couple other things so we want to take next Sunday to explain that take any questions on that during our Sunday school hour so we'll pick this up in in two weeks and if you want to look ahead and think through those you're you're more than welcome to so We'll, we'll pick it up then.